0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, let it be true of us as we just sang that our lives would be consecrated unto you, that we would be people who would be set apart personally and collectively as a church, that we would live that way, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we continue in this study through the book of Titus, That we would be a people who would respond in loving obedience to the truth of your word. That we would be a people who would display the gospel of your Son on this earth. That we would live with a sense of purpose to magnify your excellencies before a lost world that desperately needs to hear and to see of the hope of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. excited to return to this study with you. I've learned so much as I've been studying through this great book. So I want to read the opening four verses as we start. The Word of God says this, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, last week we began looking at this opening section, verses 1 through 4 of the book of Titus, And I made two important observations for you. One is that this is one long sentence, verses 1 through 4, kind of an unusually long sentence by the Apostle Paul, comparatively speaking with some of his other introductions. And secondly, we made the observation that Paul is the subject of the opening four verses or this first long sentence um, you have the usual um, normal elements of an opening introduction here, the author, the recipient, and greetings. But what you have is Paul expanding and elaborating upon himself. and we said that Paul elaborates this way about himself, not because Titus is ignorant of who Paul is or because paul doesn't or titus doesn 't understand the nature of paul 's ministry he does he 's walked with him and ministered alongside of him. But we said that he does this because Titus needs apostolic backing for this challenging task of establishing the churches on the island of Crete. It's a challenging environment. Titus is not an apostle. Titus Titus is an, an apostolic representative, receiving divine, divinely inspired words from the apostle himself, who got them, obviously, from God himself. So he needs backing for this challenging task. But also, secondly... As Titus embarks on the difficult task of helping establish these churches, there are some preliminary matters or some truths embedded in Paul's introduction here that Titus needs to keep in mind as he carries out this difficult task of establishing these churches on the island of Crete. And they were also truths that the people of, of Titus's day on the island of Crete, these believers needed to keep in mind as well as they served and ministered as a church. And they are things, beloved, that we stated last week we need to be keeping in mind as well as we serve in the church. We called them ministry prerequisites. Ministry prerequisites that the church must be mindful of if we are to be an established church and glorify God as his people here on this earth. We began to look at the first of these two and we said, first of all, that we must remember our authority. We must remember our authority in verse 1 paul identifies himself if you notice as a bond of god or a, literally a slave of god and an apostle of jesus christ this is how paul viewed himself he doesn't present himself as the great apostle paul and all of his accomplishments and credentials he presents himself as one who is a slave of god and an apostle of jesus christ having been saved by god Paul didn't view himself as a man who was his own man, so to speak. He lived for a greater purpose than the purposes, uh, than, than himself. He lived for a greater master now, the Lord Jesus Christ. Writing to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, he says this, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the grace of the gospel of the grace of God. This was Paul's attitude concerning his life. He had a mission to accomplish. And beloved, this is the attitude that should be the permeating perspective of every single one of us who are Christians. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says this, my favorite verse in all of the Bible. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, I've died to myself. No longer do I live for myself, for the great idol of self, for my purposes or priorities. I now live for the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's why Paul could have that mindset, beloved, as a man under authority and submission to God Almighty, because God had displayed his grace toward him. Uh, Jesus had loved him and showed him this love on the cross. And now Paul was a man full of gratitude who wanted to be used a, as an instrument in the hands of God, in the lives of people, and as a servant of Jesus Christ. He saw this as only fitting, only reasonable, only appropriate in light of the grace of God in his life, in light of the salvation of Christ. I read the story of a father who made it a habit to go on walks with his special needs son, who was in his early 30s, this special needs son. And during one of these walks, a car came around the corner of the boulevard that they were walking on, and at a high speed, and he saw the car that it was heading, heading for his son to hit his son. And instantaneously, without missing, without even a second thought, he shoved his son out of the way and took the hit from the car and instantly died. And later on, when the reporters and the newscasters were interviewing the son and the daughter and the family, extended family and friends, they bore testimony to the sacrifice of this man, obviously their, their relative, their father and their husband, And their friend, uh, at that moment with the son, and how he had shoved his son out of the way without thinking twice about it, but they also bore testimony of the fact that this was kind of typical of him. That he was a self-sacrificial man who was always thinking about others before himself. And now it was going to be their pleasure, even in the midst of their grief, to to live the rest of their life telling people about their father, about their husband, about their friend, who was such a a self-sacrificial individual. Beloved, I wonder for many of us in an infinitely greater way if that's, how, that's the, the, the sheer sense of gratitude that we have for our loving Savior. If this is the way that we live, this is the mindset that we have, that we don't view Him as, a, as an authoritarian dictator but as a loving Savior. and It is a pleasure to be under submission to Jesus Christ in light of the fact that He has loved us and given Himself up for us. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul talks about the kindness of God our Savior. He says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life this is the grace of god in our lives beloved i wonder if as we serve the lord and as we hear the commands of scripture and and we are instructed and exhorted and convicted of our sin if we see that as a as another evidence yet of our loving savior who desires to bless us for his glory is this you When push comes to shove, who has ultimate authority in your life? Are your opinions, speculations, your experiences the authority of your life? Or is it the Lord Jesus and his word? And is it a pleasure in response to his saving grace to present yourself as a living sacrifice for him on this earth? That's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12, in fact, verses 1 through 2. He says, Therefore, in light of the mercies of God, which he expanded upon in Romans chapters 1 through 11, in light of the mercies of God, we ought to be presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, he says, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul says it's reasonable, it's logical. It's appropriate that you would present yourself as a living sacrifice, which was a symbol of of worship. That we ought to be worshiping our Lord. That we ought to be walking in loving obedience to our Savior in light of what he has done for us. Now, we are not the Apostle Paul, as I said last week. We have had this apostolic doctrine handed on, passed down to us over the centuries, the, the, the revelation of God's word. But I asked a question last week, as we go through the book of Titus, and as as Titus and the Christians on the island of Crete were confronted with the truths of the book of Titus, and we are now 2,000 years later confronted with these truths of apostolic doctrine and, the, and this great letter of Titus, we have a choice Will we submit ourselves under our Savior's loving authority or will we continue to live as before in comfortable lives, living for ourselves in many different ways in this country where materialism is so rampant, where we are so distracted, we're going to be confronted with tough realities. We're going to be confronted with the question of, are we going to be God's kind of church or a worldly church? Are we going to be a godly leadership? Are we going going to protect God's word and sound doctrine that leads to sound living? Are we going to be people who are loving one another in biblical discipleship, the older investing themselves into the younger? Are we going to be those who are conveyors of God's loving grace to a lost world by the way that we submit to our governing authorities so that people see the gospel of, 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 of God on display? Are we going to be people who are transformed citizens who pray for our governing authorities who are living, beloved, for a greater, greater purpose than the, great, the purpose of, of, of self? Are we going to be a church that displays the gospel in our daily living, in our society, or not? See, we must remember that we are people under authority, the loving authority of a Savior. Secondly, we must remember our mission, Not only must we remember our authority, but we must remember our mission. In verse 1, Paul says that he's a bondservant or a slave and an apostle. And for what purpose? He says, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Paul served Christ, as we said last week, so that people would come to saving faith. And he served Christ. Christ, so that people might grow, having come to saving faith, in their knowledge of the truth, to a deeper, fuller, more complete knowledge of God and His revealed truth. He lived as a Christian to invest in himself into people that they might grow in conformity to Christ. And we said that this knowledge is not just intellectual, nor is it knowledge that is theoretical or, or speculative kind of knowledge. It is knowledge that if you look in verse 3, it is a knowledge that when truly understood produces godliness. And the knowledge of the truth, he says, which is according to godliness. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up in different churches and I've heard many Christians try to define godly or what godliness actually means And, um, maybe the, the image that comes to our minds, as it did for me for many years, is that godliness refers to, to, to Christians who, who are very, very, um, very polished on the outside kind of people. Who dress a particular kind of way, and that makes them godly. Who act in a particular way. Or who portray to other people that they have it all together. They never really have any struggles. They never, they don't have any weaknesses that they express. It's as if Jesus didn't really have to go very far to save them. They're externally very polished people, and they never express needs because that would imply weakness. So they have this aura about them that they are very self-sufficient people who don't really need anybody else. And that makes them godly. Beloved, the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says otherwise. The Bible speaks of godliness. First of all, as a heart deeply devoted to God and to other people. A genuine, authentic, heartfelt devotion to God. Isn't that what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says? That we need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. With everything, of our all of our being, we need to be devoted to God. So godliness means devotion to God from the heart. Not only that, but it also means that we are dependent upon God in all things. Not only at the point of conversion, where in order for you to commit your life to Jesus Christ, you you must come bankrupt as if you have nothing no merit of your own to bring before God by which you can be accepted. You are bankrupt. You have nothing. You have, you're have. you sick and tired of putting trust in yourself, and you transfer all trust now in the righteousness and the merits of Jesus Christ. But that is not just a call of, of the gospel in conversion, beloved. That is the life of the believer. And so if godliness means anything... It means that as we grow in Christ's likeness, we grow more and more progressively, less dependent upon ourselves and more dependent upon God. So godliness means devotion to God and dependence upon God. Not only that, but it's also a departure from dead works that were for ourselves to good works now that glorify God and display His gospel. So it's expressed in a life of good works for the glory of God. Not because those good works save us, but because God desires that we would be workers of good for his glory and our good now and the good of other people. So mark it. Godliness is devotion to God, heartfelt devotion to God. Godliness has to do with dependence upon God, a life of faith where you trust less and less in yourself and more and more in God. Because when you are weak, He is strong. Or you are strong in Christ, rather. A departure from dead works to good works for His glory. And I added this last week. The dominance of certain virtues. As described to us in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If godliness means anything, it's the, 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 the progressive expression of those kinds of, of, of virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. Things like like a, a subjective experience of peace based upon the objective truth that Jesus has established peace between you and God. And now there's a sense of tranquility in your life and peace because you know that in the midst of your trials and your struggles, you can trust God and you are at peace with God. And therefore, it expresses expresses itself in the way that you, um, externally in your joy. Not a hysterical laughter at everything that happens in life, but this deep-seated confidence because you know that God is in control of everything and using it for His glory and for your good, so there's joy. And might I add this, beloved, that I alluded to last week, the dominance of love. That if you are a godly person, the predominant, overarching, and permeating Christian virtue that becomes a good measure of your godliness or spiritual maturity is are you a fervent lover of God and a fervent lover of people? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul prayed in Philippians chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 that the Philippians would abound. Uh, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He says, I pray that your love would abound in real knowledge and all discernment. And he prays for a fruitful kind of love in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Love should abound, beloved, as we become more and more godly for the Lord and for other people. This is why, ultimately, godliness is conformity to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, who was the ultimate example of deep devotion to his Father but Jesus? After all, who was the the greatest example of faithful dependence upon God but Jesus? Who was the greatest example of obedient love for his Heavenly Father? and his purposes but jesus who was the greatest example of good deeds for the glory of his father and for others but jesus beloved most importantly who was the greatest example of love for uh, for god and love for people that expressed itself and showed itself in a compassionate tender mercy toward people who are in desperate situations during the days of of jesus The Lord Jesus Christ was an example of compassion and love and mercy and kindness in His humanity, was He not. Jesus is the perfect example, beloved, of truth and love working together in perfect harmony. And so if we're going to talk about godliness, then we're talking about conformity to Jesus Christ. And as we give ourselves to the growth of knowledge of God and his truth by means of his word, beloved, may we grow in application of that truth and that knowledge to become greater lovers of God from the heart and greater lovers and servants of others, like Jesus, like Jesus. So notice what was Paul's mission? Paul's mission was to see people come to know Jesus Christ and saving faith. And that they then would grow in their knowledge of the truth, which would lead to godliness, so that they would become greater lovers and servants of God's people and market. He was about investing himself into people. That was his mission, that they might grow in conformity to Jesus Christ. And you know what? I I love this verse. I love Paul's description here in verses 2 and 3 of why he is an apostle. He's an apostle for the sake of people. But you know what this ultimately is? This is, in different language, again, a reiteration of the Great Commission. That's what it is. It kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? The Great Commission is making disciples, exalting Jesus Christ on earth as he builds his church, making disciples. That's what Paul... Invested himself into doing, beloved. He invested himself into disciple-making. And he describes that here. That's what he was all about. People growing in conformity to Christ, which is the Great Commission itself. Oh, you say, well, pastor, of course. But the Apostle Paul, this is the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was a, a unique individual, a special person. I mean, he was a, a, a radical kind of guy, wasn't he? I mean, wasn't didn't he have some kind of life-altering experience with God? Jesus Christ specifically on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9? And the answer is yes, he did. He had a, a collision with Jesus Christ. But you know what Acts chapter 9 ultimately describes in that revelation from Jesus Christ? It describes Paul simply becoming a Christian. That's it. Hey, Christian, I think we, ch- we like to look at those kinds of instances in Scripture and say, "Well, wow, he was kind of unique that way. He was called to live radically that way because he had this revelation from Jesus Christ. And me, on the other hand, I got the short end of the stick in this thing called regeneration and conversion. Right? And so you know what? We weasel ourselves out of living like Paul did in the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, because we didn't have that kind of life-altering experience like the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, or maybe other uh, people that live by faith in Scripture. No? I ask you, didn't the same miracle occur in many of you who are believers? The miracle, the greatest miracle in our lives, beloved, is the miracle of the new birth, of conversion. And so therefore, For every believer, not just for the Apostle Paul, every believer has this same mission of making disciples, every single one of us, because God saved us who were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, who are under God's condemnation. And now we have been delivered and rescued from the domain of darkness. There's been a great miracle in our life so that now, beloved, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for a greater master for his mission. Second Corinthians chapter five. So good. Second Corinthians chapter five. Notice Paul speaking about the ministry of reconciliation. He says this in Second Corinthians chapter five and verse fourteen. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He, Jesus, died for all, listen to this, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. We like to talk about the fact that salvation was for the purpose of us being delivered from hell, and we say amen to that. Nobody wants to go to hell, be eternally separated from God. But how often do you think of your salvation in this way as well as verse 15 describes it? That you were saved so that you may no longer live for yourself, but for Jesus who died and rose again on your behalf. Therefore, he says in verse 16, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul is saying, oh, I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ. Old things are gone. New things have come. All of these things are from God. He's reconciled me to himself through Jesus Christ. And not only that, he has given me a baton. And the baton is that every single believer, including Paul, has the ministry of reconciliation to carry out on this earth. What is it? Verse 19, namely this preaching that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. And he has committed to us believers the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul understood That his salvation was not just for the purpose of being delivered from hell, but now he knew that he needed to stop living for himself and start living for Christ and for others, beloved. And the more that you and I ponder and deeply reflect and meditate and chew upon the gospel of the grace of God in our lives and what he has done, and you play the video in your head of your past life and your filthy thoughts and your attitudes and the way that you have hurt other people and that God rescued you from that type of darkness, the more you will be propelled to be about the ministry of reconciliation on this earth. Otherwise, you won't be and you will be a complacent, comfortable, passive, lethargic believer. Paul was a man on mission, a man just like us, empowered by the Spirit, propelled by the grace of God in his life. Mark it. See, mission is not just for some Christians, is it? It's for all. But this is part of the problem, isn't it? You know what we've done in the American church? Filthy rich, full of materialism in our country full of prosperity we call it we call each one another poor even though we may have two or three bedroom apartments right listen compare, in comparison to third world countries that is a mansion a mansion the problem is is that in our rich country we have created categories and levels of commitment to the church and to Jesus And weaseled ourselves out our responsibility to be on mission, exalting Jesus by making disciples. What do we have in the church? Oh, we have attenders. People who come in and out on special occasions and special holidays. And they clock in and out and bring their offering before the Lord as if God will accept them on those terms. Because they came on Easter Sunday or Christmas or whatever special event. And you never see them again the rest of the year. Or you have more regular attenders who come every Sunday morning, perhaps, but uh, they come in, they profit from the preaching or for, to whatever extent, but they don't apply the Word of God because then the rest of the week you never see them anywhere in anyone's lives. But don't question their salvation. Oh, you better not. Who are you to judge? And then within attenders, we have some subcategories too, Right? We have the once a week Christians, we have the two to three during the week who come in and profit from the programs and the things that the church has to offer. Everything comes in, nothing goes out. There's no sense of mission. There's no sense of purpose. There's no sense of investment of time and resources and other things into other people. They just come in and take, take, take. And then we have other people who maybe they do serve to a certain capacity or another, but hey, don't call me to become a member of the church because that would imply a greater level of commitment. And, and after all, membership is only for the radical believers who've been around forever and ever and ever, who are really sold out about this Christianity thing. They should become members, but I don't have to become members. Right? Where in the world? I ask you this question. Where in the world do you find a verse in the Bible where God affirms or, or, or commands half-hearted, devoted followers? Come on. Old Testament? Any examples of God affirming or commanding half-hearted devotion to him or to his people? I find none in the Old Testament. What about Jesus in the Gospels? Did Jesus say, um, whoever wishes to come after me must deny part of his life and follow me whenever he feels like it, whenever it's convenient, right? And take up his cross only if it's convenient and you're not too busy for me, right? And follow after me when things are calmer in your life. When things aren't so crazy. Did Jesus ever say that? What did he say? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. That means abandon self. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily. A commitment. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. That's what he said. Full commitment, full surrender. I don't find any commendation from the Lord Jesus in the Gospels for half-hearted commitment. He sent, He rejected the rich young ruler, didn't He? Who wasn't willing to give up his riches. He rejected the self-righteous who didn't see the fact that He's a sinner in the hands of an angry God who needed salvation. What about in the New Testament after the Gospels? Any commendation for half-hearted commitment? Beloved, the answer is no. No, no, no. Where have we gotten the idea that following Jesus means I pick and choose what I will follow, when I will follow, and with whom I will follow? That's American Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. I tell you that right now. It's not. Jesus' mission for his people is that we would exalt Him by making disciples and thus build His church here on this earth. And that's not optional, beloved. That's not a recommendation. We don't find such language in the Scriptures of it being a a negotiable thing. In the Bible, you are either a Christian or you are a non-Christian. Period. You may be a struggling Christian at different times in your life because we're not perfected. Certainly. But those who have believed will persevere until the end, will they not? In the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God. So there's a Christian, and there's a non-Christian. And if you're a Christian, you have a mission to fulfill as part of the church under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we had a passion for the mission of Christ, beloved, on this earth. That we had a passion for his glory on this earth. To display the gospel to a lost world that desperately needs to hear of the hope of Jesus Christ. Somebody this week gave us a few tickets to the Dodger game. And so three of my kids and I went last night to the Dodger game. And whoa, what an atmosphere. I mean, there is, it's clear. Everything is about think blue. Think blue is Dodger blue, right? Everything is about think blue. There is an electricity at Dodger Stadium right now. I've been to Dodger Stadium before and even earlier this year. It wasn't like last night. I mean, there's electricity there. There is this... This every single thing that's being done at that ballpark and people talking and the videos that are coming on on Diamond Vision and the games that are being played and everything that's being said and the paraphernalia and all the equipment and all that stuff is all aimed at sending the the, the statement to you and I that the Dodgers are going after the mission of championship. This is the year. And you know what? I even started thinking, oh, could this be the year I remember 28 years ago getting on my hands and knees when Kirk Gibson walked up to the batter's box And then he hit that home run. I was 13 years old praying as a little kid for Kirk Gibson I mean, that's how long ago it's been 30 stinking years But every message that you get when you visit Dodger Stadium is the mission is win a championship It's coming for the first time in close to 30 years years and I sat there thinking, man, boy, do I wish that my heart's cry and the cry of my brethren and the cry of all believers all over the world right now was passionate with, a singular, with the singular mission of making Jesus known on this earth. Oh, that our hearts were passionate like that, beloved. Beloved. Because when you love Jesus, you can't help but to be devoted to the ministry of reconciliation, of telling people about Jesus Christ so that they would come to know Jesus and helping them grow in conformity to Jesus Christ so that they may be presented to their loving shepherd someday when he returns. Oh, that we have have a passion for that. We're not selling Jesus. It's different than the Dodgers. The Dodgers are selling a product for money. For prosperity, for pride, yes. And we cheer for them. We're not selling Jesus. Jesus doesn't need you and I to sell Him at all, beloved. He is the King of glory. The risen, exalted one, beloved. And He calls us out of gratitude to Him for what He has done for us to make His name known on earth. That's our mission. We must remember our authority. Remember our mission, and thirdly, we must remember our message. We must remember our message. Paul has reminded Titus that he's a servant under authority, he is on a mission. The mission that is all of ours as well. And now he reminds Titus of the message that he lives to preach and herald. And that Titus should live to preach and herald. And that the Christians on the island of Crete should preach and herald if they are going to fulfill God's mission. And that we, beloved, some 2,000 years later should preach and herald, namely the gospel message. Look at verse 2. He says, I'm a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, and here it is in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested or revealed, made known, even his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Paul says, I've been entrusted with a message according to the commandment of God our Savior. And this message is, is centered, uh, or is the gospel message. He calls it in verse 3, the proclamation, which refers not so much to the act of preaching, as we often use it, but to the content of the gospel message itself, the proclamation, the message itself. And in so doing, he, he highlights here some beautiful features of the gospel message that I want us to examine together. These are going to be kind of subpoints under this third point, Okay. Notice that the gospel message that Paul preaches brings hope. The gospel message brings hope, very simply stated in verse 2. He says, in the hope of eternal life. Paul says, I minister as an apostle in order that people would come to saving faith and that then they would grow in their knowledge of the truth so that they would grow to be more and more godly. And the basis of all of this is that they might have hope which consists, this hope, of eternal life. He speaks of this hope later on in the book of Titus, chapter 3 and verse 4. Notice, we read these beautiful verses already, but I want to read them again. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, here's the fruit or the result of God's saving grace, so that, verse 7, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So this hope finds its source in God's saving grace. What does our sin bring? Our sin brings physical death. What does God's saving grace, having been embraced by faith, bring? It brings eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The basis of our hope is what God has done to save us in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. He speaks of this hope again. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to all men. And what does this grace do? Not only saves us, verse 11, but it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And then there's this anticipation or expectation that grace cultivates in our hearts, looking for the blessed, what? Hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Ultimately, Our hope is embodied in Jesus Christ himself. He is the one that we hope in. Speaking of his second advent in those verses, Jesus is the one who brings eternal hope to us. He is the deliverer of that ultimate hope, if you will. That's why we cry out, don't we? Maranatha. Maranatha. Come, Lord, quickly. Come quickly. And we should be crying out that way, beloved that Jesus would return because he's the one that delivers hope. Ultimately, it's the person of Jesus who is our hope. Not the gifts, but the giver. Jesus is our greatest treasure, beloved. He's our greatest treasure. I don't know about you, but I long to see Jesus. I long to see Jesus. I long to be delivered from my sin completely. I long to be unhindered and undistracted in my fellowship with my Savior, don't you? Aren't you tired of your, of your wretched sin? I'm sick and tired of my wretched sin. I want to be delivered from the body of this death. That's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, contemplating the, the, the sinfulness of, of his remaining humanity. He says in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me literally from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one who's going to deliver him ultimately from the body of this death. Jesus is our hope, beloved. We're we're on a mission to proclaim the gospel so that people may have hope, the same hope that we have learned to love and experience, right? How reliable is this hope? After all, when you think about the the world around us, and maybe you hear people speaking of hope all the time, but how do they speak of hope? As this thing that is more like wishful thinking, that is elusive, that is ungraspable. It's more like chance, really. It's become synonymous with chance, right? This may or may not happen. I hope that it does. There are certain things that need to take place before that thing comes to fruition. It may or may not happen. Beloved, listen, our Christian hope is is, is completely the opposite. It is sure. It is the confident expectation that, that there will be something fulfilled. It is a sure conviction, not wishful thinking. It is something sure, reliable, dependable. And the the question is, why is this? Why is our hope different than the world's hope? Precisely because it finds its source in God's unchanging character and faithful activity. And that's the second feature of this gospel message. Notice, the gospel message reveals the faithfulness of God. It reveals the faithfulness of God. He says in verse 2, In the hope of eternal life, which God... God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. It is often said that time and testing reveals the the character of a person, right? Beloved, if this is true, then, then God is most certainly dependable, trustworthy, and faithful. Because he has kept his word every single time. And this is also seen in the gospel message. Notice verses 2 to 3 really are talking about this hope of eternal life, which God promised long ages ago, he says. Literally before the times of the ages. What is he talking about? He's talking about before time, before human history as we know it. Before human history, God determined to provide eternal life for people that he would create in time and space as we know it. He gave his word. He made certain promises concerning the gospel of his son. And because because of his unchanging character, he cannot go back on his word. God, who is truth and all truth, cannot lie. He cannot act uh, um, in contradiction to his character. For him to lie or to go back on his word would be unnatural. It doesn't flow from his character because he's dependable and trustworthy, not wavering, tossed to and fro like human beings are who don't keep their word. He's trustworthy. It's hard for us to understand and comprehend that, right? In a world that is constantly changing, constantly fluctuating, constantly deception permeating our culture and our world, subtle twistedness. People say things that they don't mean. People make promises that they don't keep. You and I have made promises that we don't keep. But God is a God of truth. God is a God who says he's going to do something and he delivers. He does not change. He does not go back on his promises. Scripture is abundantly clear about this. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? It's almost as if the writer is saying, really? Of course he will. He's not like man. First Samuel chapter 15 verse 29. Also the glory of Israel speaking of God the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 it is impossible for God to lie. And the point that he makes in that context is, in light of the fact that God is reliable and he doesn't go back on his word, therefore hold on to your hope as an anchor of your soul. Hold on to your hope. Because God is dependable and trustworthy. And so here as well, in verse 3, we see God's faithfulness. It says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. In other words, before time, he made promises. But look at verse 3. But at the proper time manifested even his word. Now we go from eternity past, if you will, to now human history. At the proper time he manifested, made known, revealed even his his word. When he says at the proper time here, he's highlighting God keeping his word in his sovereign timing as revealed in human history according to his divine prerogative. Absolutely in control. Absolutely all-powerful. God promised blessings, beloved. In eternity past, and now in time, in His sovereign timing, He has fulfilled His promises. Oh, the faithfulness of God that you and I need to savor. He is such a faithful God, isn't He? I just want you to, to consider... That after tens and tens and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years, and that's just considering human history, and people have come and go, and kingdoms have come and go, and kings and rulers have risen and been dismissed, God, in the midst of all of that, has kept His Word faithful, unlike human beings who are corrupt and fluctuating constantly. I just want us to ponder, beloved, for a few minutes and consider the faithfulness of God in the gospel. Think about the gospel. In its origin, according to this passage and others, God promising in his eternal purposes before the times of the ages, in the words of Titus chapter 1 verse 2, in the words of Paul in Ephesians 1 3 before the foundation of the world, God set forth a plan. Before time, God had a plan. And then there's time, human history. There's the creation of the universe and human beings. The crown of God's creation. But then there is the sad fall of man. Where sin and the result of sin death entered into the world. And in Genesis chapter 5 in the genealogy of the descendants of Adam. We see the, the, the record of people being born and dying. Born and dying. Born and dying. Born and dying. There's a major problem called sin that leads to death. And everyone around is going to experience that because of their sin. So there's no hope, and there's a problem, and nobody can save themselves. And yet, in the midst of that hopelessness, there was a promise in Genesis chapter 3, wasn't there? Of God to the to the to the woman that from her womb, ultimately, there would be a seed that would proceed from her, an ultimate savior, Messiah, who would bring hope. Hope. Beloved, that's six thousand to eight thousand years ago in human history if you will that promise made to that woman to eve concerning her seed and then the question was how would god bring forth his this savior this this one who would come and bring deliverance well first of all they worked through individuals right abraham and the abrahamic covenant and isaac and jacob and then jacob god forms a huge nation for jacob the 12 tribes of israel through whom God, through Israel, God will, will bring about the, the, the promise to bless the nations through this one people, the Israelites. But then it got more specific. The promise was narrowed down through, through through to one tribe, the tribe of Judah, through whom King David came. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in the Davidic covenant, David, King David was promised By God, that through His kingly line there would be an ultimate, forever King whose kingdom would have no end. That was about a thousand years, a thousand years before Jesus walked onto the scene, beloved in the Gospels. Think about that. God is caring about His purposes and fulfilling His promises. Now it's going to go through, this, through the line of David. And of course, then there were the dark years and the divided kingdom where the, where the, where the people were rebellious and idolatrous. And God raised up prophets, faithful men who prophesied concerning the hope of Israel for all nations, the Messiah who would come. We have a beautiful portrait of Isaiah chapter 53, the, the suffering servant who was crushed for our iniquities, who died for us on the cross. Isaiah, beloved, prophesied in Isaiah 53 some 700 years before Jesus walked under the scene so that when Jesus walked under the scene, it was the fulfillment of God's promises, right? But before that, there were 400 silent years where God didn't give revelation to anyone between the old Testament and the new Testament, 400 silent years where God was not heard from. And the cry of the God's people, those who were faithful must have been during those times. Will God keep his promises? And the answer when the gospels open was a resounding celebratory. Yes, he will. Because the angel Gabriel appears to Mary in Luke chapter one, verse 31 with these words, behold, Which is another way of saying, Mary, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you right now. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, the Lord who saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, listen to this, will give him the throne of, from a human standpoint, his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And then Jesus, in fulfillment of God's promises, was born, wasn't he? In God's perfect timing. Precisely according to God's divine, sovereign prerogative. So that it said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, concerning the birth of Jesus, that when the fullness of the time came which is another way of saying in God's perfect, sovereign timing, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In fulfillment of God's promises, beloved, beloved, According to God's perfect timing, Jesus accomplished redemption for God's people so that we, by faith in Jesus, may become children of God, justified before a holy God. Jesus accomplished redemption for his people. And you know what? The story is not over, is it? Because we can read the book of Revelation and listen, if God fulfilled His promises to this point, we have the sure conviction, the sure expectation that He will do so in the end. We know exactly how the story in Revelation ends, right? We know exactly how Revelation ends. Where all of us are ascribing worth and majesty to the God of the universe, beloved. In celebration, reigning with Christ, Beloved, take comfort and be encouraged by the conviction of your hope. Which is only possible because of God's unchanging character, right? Because God is a God who doesn't waver in His faithfulness. This is our our Christian hope. For those of us who have committed our lives to Jesus Christ. But I ask you, for those of you who have not committed your life to Jesus Christ, what are you trusting in? What are you hoping in? If it's not the God of the Bible and the salvation that comes only through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you hoping in? Are you hoping in chance? I hear more and more millennials now talking about, and young people talking about chance, chance, chance. That has its origins, by the way, in Greek mythology, where people began to trust in this gaseous force called chance and it became in some kind of a, of a God, little G. Nothing new under the sun. What is chance? It's a non-existing reality. Can you define it? Can you explain it? Does it have? It? Does it have any foundation? The answer is it doesn't. You really want to leave the eternal destiny of your soul up for chance. Really? Is it materialism? Are you hoping that, hey, If I just keep gaining the things of this world, I will be satisfied in this life and surely God will accept me if I've gained enough toys before Him someday. That isn't going to happen. Again, Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? The answer is nothing. Nothing. Reason? Reason? Are you putting your hope in your own reason? Maybe you want answers, and unless I get all of the answers answered according to my own satisfaction, I simply cannot believe. Listen, Christianity is a reasonable faith. I believe the Bible has answers to life's greatest questions. Whether they satisfy us or not, that's a whole different story. But ultimately, no amount of answers will satisfy some people, beloved. No amount of answers. You know what the issue is? According to Romans chapter 1, the problem is not enough information. The problem is ultimately rebellion and unbelief. And the suppression of the truth and ungodliness. The worship of the creature rather than the creator. So you have questions. It's good to dialogue. You have questions that you, we all have them. Even as Christians, we have them. It's good to dialogue. It's good to wrestle with truth, but genuinely open the Word of God if you have not committed your life to Jesus Christ and ask God, your Creator, Oh God, reveal yourself to me in a special way. I want the answers, Lord. I want to know your truth. I want you to, I want you to draw me to yourself. I want you to help me see my sin and my need for your, for your saving grace in Jesus Christ. And if you come to God with that kind of broken and contrite heart, God will not cast you away. He will not. Don't let your quest for answers keep you away from trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, of committing your life to Him. Finally, your final sub-point here, the gospel is a message, content to be proclaimed. It's, it brings hope, it reveals God's faithfulness, and it is a message. What is this gospel message? It is the beautiful good news that Jesus, God's own Son, left heaven and came to earth, becoming human, lived a perfect life, died an unjust death in the place of sinners, but rose from the dead, was ascended and exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And in light of his atoning work, God is now declaring to all people who are each of us, every person born into this world by nature sin, sinners, each of us must repent of our sins and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Each of us, God says, should confess him as Lord and Savior, confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And what is the result of that confession that you may be forgiven? That you may be made right before a holy God. And that you may have eternal life. What is this gospel message? In some, it is God's eternal plan. Unfolded in human history, whereby God is glorifying himself in the salvation of sinners by grace through faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul calls God a saving God in verse 3 according to the commandment of God, our Savior. And as Titus reads this introduction, he's reminded that he was to help establish the church, beloved, by keeping this gospel on the forefront. And the believers on the island of Crete needed to keep this gospel on the forefront. And for us, beloved, 2,000 years later as well, we dare not assume the gospel. We do that. And it has been said that one generation articulates and protects the gospel. Another generation assumes the gospel. And the following generation loses the gospel altogether. We dare not assume the gospel, beloved. May it not be true of us. Nothing but the gospel has the power to produce saving faith. Nothing but the gospel has the power to produce godliness in the life of a sinner. And this is why Paul could instruct Titus to instruct different members of those churches because of the fact that they could obey in the power of the gospel because they were saved by Christ already. They could be sanctified. They could submit themselves to these loving instructions for the glory of Christ and for their own good that they might be established. We must not assume the gospel, beloved. We must not dismiss it. We must not undermine it. We must not downplay the gospel in our personal lives or in our church ministry. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. And if we believe this, then we must keep the message at the forefront of all that we do, both for saving faith and for sanctification, being reminded of the precious grace that we are dependent upon. In our sanctification, our process of becoming more and more like Jesus only the gospel can produce beloved a strong healthy established church and that happens as we as we as a church submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ with all of its implications for our lives personally and collectively because you know what these are challenging times in our world challenging times in our society and it is imperative that we arm our thinking by remembering these truths that we're a church under authority God's authority we serve him according to his word, that we're a church on mission, investing ourselves into people, that people would come to know Christ and be built up in Christ so that Jesus' church is built on this earth and we're displaying the gospel. And we must arm ourselves with the, with the reality that the gospel message must be at the forefront of everything that we do. Everything, beloved. And may the Lord give us the grace to be able to do that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, your, your word is so clear and so cohesive and so much in harmony with this text, with other texts, how beautiful it is to be able to behold your precious word and that it is clear and it draws a line on the sand, beloved uh, 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 father, uh, w- in, in terms of our our ministry to one another as a beloved. In the way that we need to live before you and in our love for one another. Father, help us. Help us to be people in application of your word who recognize that we serve you, who recognize that we are on mission, who recognize that we have a message to proclaim to a lost world and to one another. Father, help us to be people on mission and help us to grow in our love for you, our devotion to you, and in our love and devotion for one another, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.